Welcome, traveler, to Dungeons and Dialectics, the synthesis of tabletop role-playing games, philosophy, and theology. We talked a lot about the issues with AI and what it can't do in the game and what people are proposing it should do, but it's probably not going to be able to. Or some you, want some prog- you want some prognostications. So, is well, that what you're what saying? I, what I want to ask about is, well, how can we use AI yes. as dungeon? Like, what, what would yes. make sense to use AI in the game? All right. So I'm going to give you a couple of answers. Uh, I'm going to start with the things that are practical and might happen in the near future and then i'm going to say some uh-huh. crazy shit that may never happen but could be cool hell yes give us the crazy shit but build to it okay. good thinking okay so let, let's let's start simple um yeah we're playing a game of D and we have a laptop open and as we do stuff we see images on the screen that represent what our characters are doing that'd be uh-huh. pretty cool right um so like we have a combat encounter and we've described who our characters were like ahead of time so the ai knows what they look like and then we say uh we walk into a tavern and then a tavern appears on the screen Uh and then we say we talk to so and so and then you see an image of like so and so so just like kind of having like little drawings and stuff uh while you're talking or you know when we play D, we put on um like a pretty generic like music mix so if it was like djing live to like match Uh and then maybe add fully like oh there's a battle and then it spins up battle because it like listens to what you're saying i could probably build something which does this in like using today's technology in less than a month and i would be surprised if someone isn't working on something like this i know Um, some i know some people do do things very similar but a lot of them do it ahead of time they're like or like the players will say oh we go to the tavern you're not ready with the tavern but you just go into like mid journey or whatever, and you're like, make yeah. me a tavern, and then you can have it up in like minutes. So people are already doing this, sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not. Oh, that's like, cool. It's you mean for like a map, Joe? Like it'll it'll make a little mini map of the tavern. Is that the idea? So the example that I've seen, and this is posted on YouTube. Maybe we'll be able to link it in our in the show notes. Is that it wasn't like a battle map, but I'm pretty sure you could ask Mid Journey to come up with with a battle map uh, because. There are a lot available on the web. Right. Now, with that said, this is then my question is about the ethics behind this. Because, oh, yeah. like, this is a big question with, with AIR, and it's a big question in D&D. Because recently, or recently a time of recording, like, by the time this is posted, this will be, like, years This is ago. old news. The yeah. world will be over by then. <laughs> yeah, but, um, we'll be Skynet. Wizards of the Coast got in deep trouble, or hot water with the fans, again. Deep doo-doo. For quite a year. Because they published or they had art in one of the books or PDFs or, or something that was AI enhanced. And all the other major publishers of tabletop RPGs, like no one's as big as Watsi, but all the other ones like Paizo that publishes Pathfinder and a lot of the smaller ones have specific policies, no AI art in their, in their books. And Watsi did not have that policy. They they let this slide through and they got a lot of heat from fans because a lot of the fans are saying you should not publish AI art because the original artists whose work is being scraped and then used as inspiration, mm-hmm. like they're not getting compensated for this at all. I think that this is a is is sort of a an interesting question. It's like when you yeah. talk about this frauds, I'm like, holy shit, that would be so cool. That would be so much fun to be able to see that come alive for us mm-hmm. and is that 
ethically an okay thing to do well i mean this this is like the question of ai right now this is what yeah. everybody is is like asking about which is like how are we going to deal with the copyright historically before we had generative ai in the past two years the answer was um that you can use whatever you want you can even use copyright materials to train ai but now we've opened up a whole another can of worms which is going to involve litigation and is probably yeah. going to have new laws passed so no, I mean, it, it, there, there has to. There's like stuff yeah. which has to happen. So, um, yeah, I think right now the New York Times is gearing up for a lawsuit against uh, OpenAI. Uh, they were trying to negotiate a deal. No, I mean, so there, there definitely is going to be something because like companies are already negotiating rights deals. Like OpenAI was trying to negotiate with the New York Times and then the New York Times uh, realized that the deal wasn't going in the direction they wanted. They, so they're, gonna, they're going to probably sue OpenAI for using their training material. Um, so like, there's gonna really? be a lot of lawsuits. Yeah. So there's gonna be a lot of lawsuits. Do you think they'll win? When you have a like a massive corporate lawsuit, you never actually wait for the end result. You always settle beforehand. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so they're probably gonna come to some settlements, but it's gonna be more hardball than just like whatever kind of low ball deal that they were gonna get before they started gearing up. Another approach has been that Getty Images is training their own model, uh -huh. image generated model. And Getty Images, of course, owns all of the all of the yeah. data that has been used to train the model. So that mm. might be the safe model to use. That's like definitely something which people are thinking about. Yeah. Anyway, well, isn't this one is... of the isn't this one of the reasons why Elon has like like he like did, made all these weird changes about the accessibility of, of tweets and stuff, which people don't like because they were being scraped by some of these models, and he wants to use it for his own shit, his own models. I mean, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll do you one better. Uh, you know about what what happened on Reddit, right? Yeah. They, yeah. yeah. We with talked Apollo about this last time. Oh, yeah. Oh, we did? Yeah so, yeah, so exactly. Like, all these companies which kind of aren't making that much money and haven't really figured out how to turn the faucet on. They realized they were sitting on a gold mine. Exactly. Like, they, they have the most important data source, which is, like, yep. text data or image data or whatever. Yep. Yeah, exactly. They have really, really valuable data. I guess... What I expect to happen in the next five to ten years, I don't know if it will be a good living. I don't know how much money you're going to make, but you will be compensated in terms of royalties for the if your material was used to train an AI model. Yeah, um, because there's already lawsuits and stuff that are happening. It's going to be like Spotify. It's going to be like Spotify yeah. pay for the music industry, Probably. like ten yeah. cents. <laughs> yeah, so that's why I'm skeptical of how much they make because Spotify does not pay good royalties. But yeah, yeah, yeah. there will be some. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Joy. Oh no, no, no. I I think that I think that this model, the the Getty Images model, where an entity that owns the art then training on the art, that makes that makes a lot of sense to to me at least from like a legal perspective nobody is getting everyone's getting compensated for the art that they make art is getting produced and so like wizards of the coast for example could hire a bunch of artists they could even make art that doesn't get published in books but yes. just becomes part of the corpus for training ai models so then they as part of their new one dnd fancy shit can have this service that you're talking about that it starts to spontaneously generate images reflecting what's happening in the game with that said so for something like that that this is real time happening in the game that's something that a human artist is not able to do the fact that yes. i'm seeing cool images of my game does not mean that another artist who could be getting work out of this is is like getting screwed over by this with that said does that mean that well if it becomes once watsi gets enough material from actual artists they can just have they can just start creating like they can just start ai generating like all the art and maybe hire some artists to do like a few pieces each 
when they publish like a new book or they publish like something uh, yeah. or design so like you, a new you cut out you, you, you cut out for a second so, oh, sorry. I, so I didn't hear everything that you said uh, but I, I think I got the general gist of yeah, it yeah yeah so, so respond to what you heard and then okay <laughs> and then, <you'll> <laughs> and then I'll I, pretend I said something smarter yeah yeah and the, the rest is on the Patreon as you keep alluding to oh yeah yeah I think you're just you're just making up a bunch of you're just like making up a bunch of conversation that's a good bit actually we should say oh. like, well as you mentioned on the Patreon <laughs> but it's like something which was like never, never mentioned if we yeah, made yeah. any errors it was a whole Elucidation. If yeah. we made any errors during this discussion, it's uh, we actually that was we correct on the Patreon. That was a little oh, yeah, bit, yeah, yeah. as as yeah. the listeners will know who are subscribed to our Patreon. Yeah, yeah exactly. All one of them. This is a great sales tactic, actually. We just make people <laughs> feel excluded unless they go on the Patreon. I hope it works because so far it has not been. <laughs> Let's see. To answer your question, I think the generation of images, if we talk about the two classes of AI, which are like completely autonomous versus human in the loop, creating good art is very much a human in the loop type problem. Yeah. So yeah, like we can spin up stuff completely automatically while you're playing the game, but it's not going to be as good as if you actually have a human mm. guiding it and saying like, okay, place the character in the foreground. I want a like a low angle that shoots them from above so they look yeah. heroic. I want the wind flowing. Also, I know that my friend here really like really really cares about this guy's sword. So like make sure that we like make the short sword shine bright. So like yeah. you can have AI make something, but then having a human to iterate on it to make it better is mm -hmm. going to be better. Maybe I'm being optimistic here, but I think there's a world in which this actually increases demand for people to hire artists to make art for them mm -hmm. based off of their sessions. Maybe. I think I think that the two things are possible. I think that we have seen that there's a tendency often to do the cheaper thing that is not as good, even when we know that it could be better. So yeah. for CGI in movies right now, there are movies from from over 10 years ago that the CGI holds up better than some of the movies that are being cranked out of Marvel today. Like Avatar, the like mm. Blue People movie. Oh, which, I love yeah. that movie. <laughs> yeah, we know. Really? Uh, it's my that, favorite, yeah. Matt is obsessed with it for no reason. It's uh, Well, there's lots of, there's good reason. <laughs> the original, the CGI in the original Avatar is still like phenomenal and so much better than like, you know, Black Panther, fantastic movie. Final atrocious cg oh my god yeah, yeah yeah they look like just kind of like rubber like rubber dolls <laughs> weightless like things just kind of flopping around in the in the battle sequence between uh him and killmonger at yeah. the end and so i'm like i see what you're saying Froz, and my concern is that like publishers just won't give a shit and they'll turn in an inferior pro product because they can yeah well and I'm, okay so so I guess that was the part that cut out. Um, I was just thinking about players. Uh, mm. I didn't hear the, what you said about publishers, but oh, regarding yeah. players, regarding players, you know, we have we found uh, that that out with like in the field of software that um, the freemium model is a really good one. So if uh -huh. you make something which is like free to everybody, then you uh -huh. get ninety nine percent of people they won't pay for it, but one percent will pay for it if they like it. And uh -huh. if you basically you make it free, this will get out to so many people yeah. that you the 1% actually adds up to a lot. So I think that's th like, I think something like that might be the case for players where, yeah, mm. sure, most of them just use this and they're like, oh, hey, cool. Like, I get to see like live what's happening. But then someone who's like really hardcore wanting like a scrapbook of all the stuff yeah. that they made and then having someone stylize it and then yeah. make it really cool and then turn it into like a graphic novel of their session. Mm -hmm. um, I think there will be people like that, you know? 
Yeah. Maybe we'll I mean, we have we have a couple people that we play with that are artists. And so yeah. sometimes mm-hmm. they'll draw characters and stuff, but that's also like they do it for fun. And I think it's like their their way of contributing to the game, right? And the the whole kind of culture surrounding it. it so like it brings it alive. Yeah. yeah. Max will run the game, but then Mac will draw like the maps or they'll draw the he'll draw the characters or something like that. And then Matt and I will write a podcast where or say a pod have <laughs> make a podcast where we talk about the game. Yeah. And like it's all yeah. part of I think our contribution I think our contribution is probably the most valuable now. By far. <laughs> By far. Um, the other far aspect as- of this is what we were saying about the value of having a human being create something. Which is like if I paid like a hundred bucks for like a little graphic novel of my game and I had a person mm-hmm. who's like good that they sat down and they made it and then they yeah. printed it out for me and you know I have this little booklet that's like physically, you know, stapled together and yeah. I have that in my room and then people come over and I show them this booklet. That's way more valuable than yeah. If I had literally the exact same thing, but it was made by an AI and it's just like yeah, like like the, the the sort of value that we ascribe to like our to our art and our possessions come from knowing the work and effort that went into it to some degree, right? And so that's like it's such a fascinating thing for me because I know that that's true. Like when you see something is handmade, yeah. it can be worse than the thing that is machine made. Like aesthetically, it's not quite perfect, or it's like a little bit sloppy in a couple parts. Or you can see where somebody um, like took a shortcut. Or it's, like, not as consistent. But there's, like, a certain value that we associate to something for being handmade. Now, I have a lot of skepticism about this because I think that... I think we live in a a time where perhaps because everything is so... Because we are so alienated from the production process, we have started to ascribe value to getting closer to the actual production of something. Mm. And and I think that... So I call it... Or I think of this as like a commodification of authenticity mm-hmm. that suddenly we're, we're willing to pay more, we're willing to ascribe more value to something if it's quote-unquote authentic, if it's handmade, if if the food is, oh, just, just like they would eat in the Far <laughs> East. It's like a simulacrum of um, real connection with oh, you, you know, the production process. You know I have such a hard-on for simulacra. I <laughs> Thanks. I think I'm going to take a step off to go jack off right now. Nice. Which is a joke you would get if you listen to the Patreon. If you listen to the Patreon, yeah. yeah. That's how we started the episode. Wanted, I actually wanted to ask uh, you about this, Matt, uh, but we breezed over it. So, like, what okay. do the philosophers say about this like concept of like we ascribe to we we judge art not just by its intrinsic qualities, but also what effort was put into it. Okay, while you think about that, Matt, I'm going to share a story. Okay. This is a story from, from Austin, our favorite Patreon subscriber. <laughs> so one time in college, it was in like an English class or something, arts and letters, whatever the like kind of woo social sciences mumbo jumbo. And Dornsai? for the... What? Yeah, Dornsai. Yeah. <laughs> a bunch of losers. Oh, you should edit that out, actually. That's a that's another clue. What? Oh, the USC? I've yeah. said that I've been, I went to USC before. I usually could be I'm okay with information that though. That could be could disinformation. Be, yeah. Could be disinformation. What could be it's disinformation? Slugs. Oh yeah, yeah. Slugs. Well, like, <laughs> UC Santa Cruz or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to to make us seem cooler than we are. 
by going to the University of South Carolina. Anyway, um, so we're there and he he had this project and for his final project, it was supposed to be kind of like artistic, but it didn't have to be like an art project. But he rewrote a book in the style of a graphic novel, except that there were no like images like drawn. All the images were made up of the words from the novel that they had read as part of the class. Wow. Uh, no, it was super impressive, and it was printed on like, nice paper. Um, I don't remember what program he used to to put it together, but so like you would have someone appears in the doorway, and it describes the scene. But the description is like was like the room around him, and so you could see his silhouette. And then the other character was like made up of the words from the from the story. Oh, it was super cool! And he turned it in and got a B. Woof! And wow. and someone else in the class got an A for turning in the Hardy Boys, a copy of the Hardy Boys painted black. Why? What? Yeah, why, why did he paint it black? What does that What do you mean, mean? painted black? Like, literally just he got a it book and then he put paint? Black paint. That what was that, the project. What did that represent? I don't remember what it represented and Austin didn't understand and he was pissed off, so I don't think he communicated very clearly what it was. <laughs> the, I say this because like Austin, Austin works, puts so much work into this. I like, I, I would go to sleep and he's like still working, like carefully adjusting where all the words go. He put like a ton of effort into this and that effort was not valued. Well, it will be valued by the Patreon subscribers when you post it there. It's true. It, it's yeah, by the Patreon subscriber whose name is also Austin. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Uh, um, Austin, I you're, actually, you're at once our, our patron and our content. That's how all of our patrons are. That yes, that's what I, I actually said. really. I actually really want to see this. It's, you, uh, the Hardy Boys painted black. Thinking. That's a, it's yeah, a great man. piece yeah. of work. Yeah. So, so um, Matt, tell us about yes. the philosophy. Thank you. I'm not an esthetician. <laughs> I don't know that much about aesthetics. There are open questions in aesthetics about the degree to which, like, an intentional craftsman is necessary for the thing to count as a craft, right, of that mm-hmm. kind. Uh, but those are kind of like, they're like quasi-metaphysical questions. I'm not that interested in them. Yeah. What I was thinking about was the sort of classical Marxist concept of the commodity fetish, which, you know, is interpreted in various ways, but... What does that mean? Like, Explain to us well, how yeah, you so interpret it. Well, so, I mean, the, the like, 10,000-foot simplification is that within certain economic structures things that have a um, economic value for us are made to appear to us as though that value was intrinsic to the the object it's a relation among things like values are related is related to the thing whereas in fact Mm -hmm. the things are just uh relations among persons or the reality on oh interesting Right. So it's like my shoe or the shoes that you see in the store come like present to us as though they were valuable in themselves. Like that shoe's worth a hundred dollars. You see the value as though we're inheriting an object in ordinary life. But in reality, it's just a a something that has come out of a process of being crafted and and what have you. Uh And, you know, the, the whole I get use value out of it by being able to walk around with it and then I could resell it. And all these are just further relations among persons. Mm -hmm. So value really is a function of 
human needs and human crafting and technology and all these things. But the ordinary experience of it kind of hides that from us. Yeah. So, um, for example, the reason that, like, the reason that a brand name thing or whatever it is is more expensive than not the brand name is not necessarily because the thing itself took more labor to produce, took different technology to produce, took different... Right. It's like more costly to produce necessarily. Sometimes it's true, and you can often get like better quality from certain brand names. But the reason that like a Gucci bag is so expensive is because it has the name Gucci on it. Because it doesn't actually have that value in like the Marxist sense or in the Marxist analysis. It's fetishized. Right. So Marx has a labor theory of value in which the value of something is the necessary labor time to produce the thing. And it's probably more complicated than that, but modern economists tend to not adopt labor theories of value. But the more interesting mm -hmm. part really is the experience of the thing as having these qualities that in, in fact are to do with our relations, but we're sort of trained or made to see it as presenting to us in the object. And it's called a fetish because, mm -hmm. you know, like in what Marx probably would call like primitive religious systems, you have these idols that are as though there's a presence dwelling in the thing of the God or the spirit mm -hmm. or whatever. But in fact, all it is, is, is given by all of that is really just a function of the way it's being used by these communities. Right. Right. So it's mm -hmm. like, there's a, there's like a mysteriousness or illusoriness to value that is akin to that which is experienced when you're encountering like religious artifacts. How does this relate to my question? Well, so the question <laughs> you were asking me is about <laughs> is about people wanting handmade goods, right? No, I think it's broader, which is that um, like if a kid, if a child were to draw something for me, I know that they didn't spend like a month drawing something. They might have just like drawn it like really quickly and slapped it together. But because this is like my cousin who drew this for me and because I care about them, mm -hmm. even though they didn't put that much effort into it and it's not objectively that good, like despite that, I still cherish this gift. Soon, right. Well, right? you're not interested in it as an exchange value, the value that it would have in the marketplace. You're not even interested in it as a use value because arguably you're not going to use it for anything with some shitty drawing. You just might put it on the fridge. That's a sort of a use value, I suppose. Well, but that it's a sort of sentiment. You all art. Yeah. Well, What's no. So any art. Right. Okay. So for most art, I mean, there's existential satisfaction that you get from looking at art, which is an important use value in human life. The, the reason <laughs> you're getting value out of your cousin's like shitty art is because it's a sort of sentimental token of your relationship with your cousin presumably, or, or something like that, or that your cousin cares about you because they took, you know, some time to do a bad drawing for you, whatever. It's like my niece, you know, um, <laughs> did some terrible art, and, you know, I, I, I yeah. treasure it because it represents a certain affection. It's a token of affection, even though it's awful. Do you have any, do you have any young you... relatives you would like to cook in this podcast, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me just, let me just shit on my cousins for a second. <laughs> the, or like your brother. Your brother probably oh is gosh. like done some terrible art at some point right oh so this is a good story about my brother doing art that one time <laughs> we uh, we we were decorating the christmas tree and there's this like horrific gingerbread man that's just like a bunch of random crap 
slapped on the gingerbread man in random assortments like googly There's eyes and the your brother pit and the and, and we're putting it up and we're like ah look at this memories from my brother's childhood when he was so young and just made this random thing and then he comes over he's like oh i remember i made this last year at the boy <laughs> wolf was like, wait like 17 hold on do you remember joey at max's gingerbread event where i made uh an avant-garde oh yeah um, i do <laughs> terrible it was great it was wait, tell tell the story <laughs> that is the story that we all you made, made a terrible like, gingerbread house like most people made like normal-ish gingerbread houses and then faraz had like like broke the pieces apart and stacked them in like weird triangles and squares and shit and like balancing on on each other and and max max was like what what the hell is this and you were like this is avant-garde it's an art piece Max was not. Uh, Max yeah. did not approve. Wait, the, you're you're no, you're leaving out the most important part of the story, well, which I is that though no, the most important part of the story was I was like, like everyone was shitting on it, and I was like, Joey, <laughs> what do you think? And you spent like an literally an hour, oh, that's like right. literally an hour dissecting every one of these. You're like, well, obviously this draws on the Cubist influences of Picasso. However, and I love this. And I, I was like, kind of like, you know, like adding fuel to the flames of being like, mm, but did you consider the fact that they use the color blue here when typically, you know, uh, they use red. the color white, you use red and everyone else. I don't know why they felt the need to feel victimized here, but they just sat there and just like were like, I don't know, looking pissy about it. And I think Matt later was like, oh, can you believe we spent an hour and a half just like talking about this bullshit? Several people later came up to me and were like, God, like Joey spent so much time just like talking about your bullshit. Like they were mad at me and you. For this like very wholesome interaction that we had, I think it sounds like you ruined our gingerbread party. <laughs> I do remember this now that you mentioned it. Yeah, it was great, and everybody was so upset. They were so upset, <laughs> but it was their fault because they were shitting on your your masterpiece. Your awful yes, garbage. Yeah, but maybe that was part of it, right? Like real artists <laughs> in suffer. their time, they, they saw. Yeah, you know, people people don't get it. Yeah, the yeah. reason. <laughs> I gave this long, tedious story about Marx was Joey oh, yeah. asked about the way in which authenticity is commodified. And it seems yeah. to me that maybe not for the first time, because this sort of thing has appeared before, but in like a large scale way for the first time, perhaps the, the relations of production that surround commodities are not being revealed in such a way that the fetish is stripped away but rather the scope of the fetish is now extending to the authentic quote-unquote production mm -hmm. process. So it's like we're not really becoming oh. closer to our goods or our lives. It's more like they're entering the field of value for us as exchangeable mm -hmm. tokens in a mm -hmm. new way, one that mm -hmm. is concerned with authentic production. Yes, and this I have a lot of I have so many mixed feelings about this because on the one hand, like I think that what results from this preoccupation with the authentic for the authentic is in a lot of ways is positive, right? Yeah. So, like while I love Chipotle, I have like such a I just love Chipotle. It's so authentic. It so much. It's not like quote unquote <laughs> authentically Mexican. It's like it's tasty and I enjoy it and whatever, but I think that you know, people like and people's critiques are like, oh, it's not authentic or like Panda Express is not authentic or like all these things are not authentic or you'll buy things 
you know, because I live in El Salvador and, and we receive all these groups that come down and they're like, oh, I want to buy something. But like, what's authentic? What's authentic? I want to buy something <laughs> yeah. authentic. And I think that, I think my frustration is, yes, it would be good if we had, if it weren't just like massive fast food chains that like right. create something palatable to U.S. Americans that's like a simulacrum, to use a term that Matt dropped earlier, a simulacrum <laughs> a of, yeah, of food that you'll, you'll find in Mexico or food that you'll find in, in China. But I don't think that the issue is the lack of authenticity. I think that the issue is these ways that we produce our understanding of food traditions and culture and the ways that they maybe don't have the best labor practices or the ways that the food is like Panda Express is kind of shitty unless they sponsor this podcast, in which case we love Panda Express and we will delete this from the episode. <laughs> I love Panda but... Express. It's the best. <laughs> Are you kidding so, me? There are so many other issues that don't have to do with the authenticity that make these problematic. But I think that what we what we end up getting preoccupied and maybe this is more of an issue with like white U.S. Americans. It's like, oh, well, I want it to be authentic. I need it to be authentic because that for me then has value. Mm, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. back to uh, uh, the D and D question. Back to my art, uh, my my gingerbread art. Yeah, no. So so, uh, but but to answer to answer your question, the ways in which we could use AI tooling to actually like play D and D and make it more fun. The first example I gave was live images and live audio. Yes. That's like, and we very, talked about that for near. half an hour. Yeah. So. So yeah, this is like supposed episode? to be wrapping up. <laughs> uh, no, this is the start of the second episode. Okay. Oh, okay, okay. So that uh, okay, so that's one thing. Then yes. what else? What else is the mix? Okay, another thing is this concept called semantic search. It used to be, actually, I guess it still is. Let's say that you have a bunch of um, like you're you're you guys are both PhD students, right? Uh, masters. Joey's okay. a masters. Joey's an inferior master's student. So you guys are doing research, and I'd imagine you have to scrape through huge amounts of information. Some of it you've read before, but it's just long notes. Some mm -hmm. of it you haven't even read yet. How do you start by searching things? I'm assuming you just go to Google and you like search keywords. Or if you're searching through your notes, you might look for keywords. But that's like the worst way to search for something. Well, It'd be you know, way better. Us, I'll, get, yeah. I'll give you a... No, yeah, go, no, with go, ahead. Thing. go with your thing. No, I was going to give a bad example. It would be way better if I could talk to somebody who's read most of it and then say like, hey, here's the question that I have. Where should I look? And then the person would say, okay, look at this. Uh, uh, look at this book. This chapter covers that. Look at this. This chapter covers that. Uh, here's like a section. If, if I could like interact with search in the way that I would interact with a knowledgeable person, that would be right. really, really useful. I agree um, completely. I think that you guys are going to start using tools like this within the next like year or two because this concept called semantic search has gotten like insanely good. Insanely good. This is like one of the most mm -hmm. unheralded benefits that come from large language models. So let's tie that back to D&D. &D. Yeah. I've never been a DM largely because it's overwhelming how much work and lore and stuff you have to mm -hmm. put into there. But this, I would imagine this is a problem for you. Someone walks into a tavern, but then they ask about some like random question that you didn't expect, you didn't have prepared, mm -hmm. but you did like write up somewhere else like a year ago. If it could instantly come to you, yeah. when you needed that information, that would probably be pretty useful, right? I think that this is super useful and fantastic. And especially if you're if you're running a game in in a campaign an established campaign setting. And this is this is part of the reason that I I almost exclusively run in my homebrewed campaign setting is not because I have some specific passion for a thing that I hate about the other campaign settings or that I want 
mine to specifically have. My frustration is I like I can't be bothered to learn the lore. Yeah. And then have to right. have it on have recall. to second guess any of my answers to questions because because I don't know the lore well enough or I'll say something that contradicts something. Or if you're writing a module and I say one thing and then like five sessions later, I'm like, oh crap, this person, this NPC like totally contradicts what I said. That would be so, so helpful. With right. that said, all of my games are very heavily improvisational. Mm-hmm. And so I will... I mean, honestly, there have been sessions that I've I've prepped almost nothing and I'll just go in and wing it and we'll develop like new plot lines and new NPCs will pop up. I was hanging out with the people that that I play with most often and we were just walking by a lake and some guy like started asking me these questions. And so we just kind of started riffing about he was like, well, I, during our downtime, I'm going to go to a cooking competition. And I was like, great. Well, you're up against this guy. And blah, blah. and so then we ended up doing a whole scene where he was in this cooking competition and we had this like random mechanic that we made up with with like he would pick a random number depending how close he was to like my number it was like his score and and he ended up beating he lost in the cooking competition he's like well i take out my halberd and i i'm I, my foul shard and I kill this man and so we had like this like little mini battle and he chopped off the guy's head and then that was incorporated into the into the story and it was 100% improv like none of this was planned there mm. was no cooking competition all of these NPCs I was like I don't know someone like Gortok the butcher or something was like the big bad in this classic and name that capacity for <laughs> improvising and then developing this lore about this famous chef that's like renowned in the land and then in future adventures like people would mention oh like this is Alyoshka he's the one who slore Gore the Butcher and like blah 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 or Gortok the Butcher blah 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 and that happens because you can improvise it so what I would right. prefer in my mind is like oh don't like do an have an AI do the semantic search everyone should just take improv classes and then uh-huh. and like that's what because that's what I find like interesting and fun and enjoyable about the game, not like remembering all the lore. With that yeah. said, with that, with that, with that said, with that said, is I also fuck this up all the time, and I improvise yeah. things that like totally contradict something else I said, and then the players will call me on it, and I'll be like, oh, okay, well, I just made that up, so we're gonna go back. And they have grace with me. They they're like cool with this happen. They understand that I can't have everything in my mind. Yeah, but. Your excuses will run out when uh, AI starts to make it too easy. Exactly. So I have like, those are, that's the tension that I feel as somebody who does this. The other thing that I would add is let's consider this as well for players, particularly incompetent players like myself and your co-host. So Uh, we don't, we don't (laughs) really know how to, yeah, we don't still don't really know how to play, even though we've supposedly been playing for several years. Yeah, for like, um, like how it's, it's like how Arnold Schwarzenegger refuses to try to lose his German accent. What, exactly, it's nothing like that. It's just like that. It's it's no. it's part of the charm. If I could, um, okay, so like, let's say I'm playing 3.5, and I have a spellbook of like 15 spells, and I don't yeah. know all of the bullshit that each one of them yeah. does. So I'm like, so we enter or something, and I'm like, okay, I would love if there was a spell, and I describe what I want. I don't want it to do yeah. the thinking for me, and semantic search won't. But if I'm just like, okay, can I, like, this is the task that I want to do. Like, what do I have available to me? And then it pulls up, like, the three spells that I might want to uh-huh. read, and it just instantly pulls up their description. Yeah. That... I think would actually assist in the role playing yeah. rather than me being like, oh God, okay. I have to scrape through a book to do blah, 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 blah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that and then also oh, yeah. like existing lore. So like if you have established lore, then I can like stuff which I should know about or stuff maybe oh. I wasn't there for that session or I forgot you or it's backstory. Ask. Then I can just check and it's also available to me. I, I think semantic search would be quite useful for D&D yeah. for players think, as well. I think you're right. And especially with, with like clerics or druids that know every spell and they just prepare spells every day. Right. Like they, there's no way you know every spell in the game. Um, unless you only play clerics all the time or have like photographic memory or whatever. But if you can look it up with semantic search, that sounds, yes. that would be great. I do think it's still important for dungeon masters to know how to synthesize information. Well, uh, Matt, you know, Evan, who we play with on Wednesdays, he, right. he's read all the books and he's read all the lore of Eberron and he listens to the podcast about Eberron and he knows everything about this. What setting. a nerd. And he got annoyed with me. Um, when, we were playing in Pathfinder and mm. my character, oh, we started talking about like Chaliax people versus um, I, I think. Yeah, was it, was. it was, I think it's Chiliax and Verisian and yeah. you didn't realize that you were like one of the racist yeah. people or whatever. I didn't realize that was like one of the Nazis. <laughs> you're like a colonizer or something. And he was like, yeah, so like technically you're like families, Chaliax descended. It's mostly like black hair. And I'm like, oh, well, my character has blonde hair. And Evan was like, I know. It's been bothering me since we started playing. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, how, who cares? You know, yeah, you got a dye like, job, dude. You got ti- <laughs> you got frosted tips. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was... That no. sounds like something Bravos would do, to be honest. Yeah, it, it really does. Um, <laughs> and so, so when I run a game, I don't expect my players to know, like, most of this thing. I will write, like, maybe a page of notes. Not even. It's usually, like, I don't know like five short paragraphs that maybe takes up almost a page and with a couple of pictures. And that's all I ask my players to read. And it's in the notes section mm. of our like little thing. And so I think that semantic search good. Right. Right. And right. I don't think that replaces the obligation on game masters to know how to synthesize information. Like yes. this is the useful thing that you need. And you shouldn't need to know what color hair your racist ancestors have. Yes. Yeah. So, understand this game or if you do need to know that it will be diegetically explained yeah sounds like you are of the school of thought that in some cases ai shouldn't entirely replace humans but rather assist them (laughs) so i i'll tell you where i i'll tell you where i am on this i in a perfect world that's the integration that i would like to see my fear is even if that's the best solution ai will replace humans because Mm -hmm. We already do the cheapest CGI that we can that we can get away with, even though we could do something of better quality. Yeah, because we because people are lazy or people don't want to spend money or people the corporations always, don't want to spend money. They want the, the they want corporations don't want to spend money. They want to earn well, the money, right? Are <laughs> that's right. That's um, true. And my fear is that we will do as a society we will do what is expeditious and what benefits the rich and powerful. And not what's actually best for everybody. And yeah. so, does that mean that we have to put in artificial restrictions? Yeah. So this isn't this. This doesn't really care about who links to what. Um, this just cares about like, does it have words that are semantically similar to the words that I'm looking for, rather than the keywords or rather than the linkages? Oh, and so that's why it would be helpful if you're searching this large database of, for example, spells, if you don't know exactly what you're looking for you'd be like i want something that shoots fire and then it'll pull yeah. up flame strike which doesn't 
say fire in the title, but it's, yeah. um, but it does. I think it, I think it could do stuff even more subtle than that. Like yeah. Google probably could do like, if I look up like list of fire spells, Google could probably like give me something like that. But if yeah. I were like, um, what is the spell that allows me to shock and all my enemies with like something with great, uh, like with, with something which is like extremely dramatic. Yeah. Right. There's no like direct word that would, yeah. There's no like keyword or synonym or uh-huh. linkaging which would allow me to do that, but maybe it is it associates theatric shock and awe, um, spectacular with, yeah. with, with a like giant uh, flame. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay, so could you could you use this also for like function of a spell? So, for example, like if you're just reading the rules and you're maybe not familiar with the game enough that like you can just intuit based on the way it's describing it what situations it'll be useful in could you say oh i would like a spell that's good at crowd control right yeah that's good at crowd control yeah 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 that's an interesting question so could you achieve this through something like embedding I, i don't know i don't know what the answer to that is but i'm sure that if you asked uh chat gpt something like this then it probably mm-hmm. could give you like a, a pretty decent answer as long as it was fine-tuned on the mm-hmm. the text. So either through right. like directly using um, like semantic search or by integrating it with a more general purpose large language model, you, you probably could mm-hmm. sort of achieve these goals. I guess my main point is it's not that hard for like a software developer to build something like this using today's technology. All right. So just like my thoughts on things that you yeah. can do with AI now. Yeah. Is, Let's hear from the AI, expert, Joe. The, well, I'm the expert on, on dungeon mastering is that there's a long history in tabletop RPG, RPGs that we've actually talked about in our episode on random encounters mm. about Way back. randomness and like randomly generating encounters, NPCs, dungeons. Oh. I mean, the, the 3.5 dungeon masters guide is just full of tables that you roll D100 adventure seeds. D1 you can generate a dungeon, an entire dungeon just by rolling random tables in the dungeon master's guide with like the size of the room, what the room's made of, if the treasure is hidden under a like a loose flagstone in the corner. These are all things that you can you can generate just by rolling on auto tables. generate Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not like AI, obviously, but I think that that's something that you could do with AI, and it would have a much more robust output than you get by just rolling on like random tables that you find in a book, because it can pull from anything. Yeah, no, this is a this is a really great example. This is a really really clever um, thing which you're drawing on, because this relates to other fields, like other areas. This is so essentially what you're describing is procedural generation, which is the old uh-huh. way of doing things, versus can we make procedural generation way better by throwing generative AI into the mix, right? Yeah. Um, and so D and D, this is a great example of where you would apply that idea. What great. else? You got? Well, that's that's that that was pretty that's much it. it for that was the, like generating random things in general is the thing that I could I could see you doing, and a couple of the things that you mentioned. Although I hadn't thought about like projecting images. That was interesting to me. Yeah. Another thing which you could probably do using today's tech is just make your voice sound more like cool. You know? What? So sweet. I know I know Joey does accents really well. Or he Mercy. does like voices really well, but uh, not everyone. From the has. from the king of accents, that means a lot for us. <laughs> oh my god. 
<laughs> yeah, maybe so, so, for us, someone like, um, you know, you might benefit from this. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Old and Feeble is, is iconic. Old and Feeble is iconic. But what was it? Wait, no, wait. What was Faraz's like George St. Pierre character named? <laughs> uh, I don't even remember. I don't remember what his name was. Yeah. yeah. But whatever. Who knows? Yeah. Actually, that, this might speak against what you're saying him. because if uh, it were any better, it wouldn't be memorable. You know, like the memorability oh. of the voice was because it was so bad. The terror, the terribleness of it. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, but if you if if you got to like do like thirty different characters, um, oh, I was a DM. Want, yeah. Yeah, as a DM, you, you want some guy who's got, like, a deep husky voice. You want a guy yeah. who sounds this way, that way. So you can just do AI voice changer. That could be yeah. useful. That's fair. Of the immersion. Or, like, you're, you're running, a, like, your character's romantically entangled with some NPC, but it's actually mm. just me talking to Max. That that gets a little awkward. Yeah, that's true. So it maybe if Max awkward. sounded like a, well, if Max sounded like a beautiful woman, you know, that would change things. I, I think, I think there are lots of beautiful women that sound exactly like Max. Wow. You're trying to one-up me in political points? <laughs> no. First, you accuse me of being a Nazi. <laughs> uh, what do you think, Matt? Uh, you mean in terms of what AI could possibly could be AI write Honey Heist three for you? Absolutely yeah. not. Honey Heist three is, is, <laughs> is, is it's that, why do you think it's taking so long? It's like it's like uh, my whole life has become Honey Heist three. <laughs> it's like I'm living it right now. Yeah, it's like uh, George R. R. Martin. <laughs> That's right. I'm totally stalled out. It's too complicated. Yeah. So you decided to do Elden Ring instead of uh, Honey Heist. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, I'm not sure if I have any. I, I didn't talk much during the last one because I really don't have, as a player, like anything that I do that where I, I, I think like, oh, here's my idea for how this would be useful. The semantic search stuff might be. I mean, that that kind of stuff might be useful for doing builds, but. I'm kind of curious about how that would deal with the problems of like making a build that would not be excessively OP, you know, like mm. help, help me build out my character, you say to the AI, and then it would be like, I want to do this. I'm thinking about this. Like, what are some of my options? Which of these? I, I kind of wonder if that could be well done, but where it wouldn't just convert into like, okay, here's the most OP build for what you're asking, right. you know? Well, um, let's do a little bit of, uh, let's do some product management here. Um, Rather than asking you like what your ideas are, tell me what are your problems as a player, and let's see if there's any AI solution to it. Yeah, I mean, my what biggest problem. What do you problem, dislike the most? Yeah, my biggest problem right now is I fucking can't remember how to play my uh, my class in uh, <laughs> Pathfinder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you I also left... chose one of the hardest classes, and I, I chose one you... of the hardest classes. Joe told me not to do it. I did it anyway, and then I forgot the book in Florida, and I don't like huh. using web tools, so I forgot how to do everything. I know. I told him. I said he's playing a summoner, so summoners are casters. It's two different classes, basically. And you have a summoned eidolon, which is like this monster that you have to design yourself and then also run. So you're running a uh, like a melee monster type slash skill monkey thing that has like can fly. His can fly, and you're running a Indeed. caster. So it's it's just a really complicated class to play. Yeah. Well, uh, on that note, bye. Bye. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening. And talk to you soon. See you you next time. Bye. Bye. Oh, that should be our sign off. We should blow kisses. (laughs) Wow.